picture with me, if you will, use your imagination a little, a small country church. Maybe you grew up going to a church like this, or if you grew up in a rural area, you've driven by many of these churches. At least in my mind, this small country church is, is white, painted white. It has a steeple. It's surrounded by fields with crops. It's out by itself, or maybe in your imagination, it's surrounded by trees and, and woods. And since we're imagining, and I'm sharing my imagination, it has a horse-drawn carriage, buggy, pulling up to the front door and people disembarking. The women wear large skirts, the men wear hats, of course. And through the front doors that are open, trying to get a breeze into the hot church on a summer's day, we can hear the congregation singing, Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. And it seems so idyllic as we gaze on this scene. The church assembles and they declare their faith in song at the top of their lungs with clapping and foot stomping that, that, that God is their God. They're convinced that God has a better life ahead of them. Swing low, sweet chariot. Cap, take me from here. Take me away. Take me to a better place. Take me to a place of happiness and of joy where I can be with you, where I can get release from the suffering and the pain and the struggles that I'm experiencing here below. But there's an important detail missing from the scene that I've described. And maybe, maybe you recognize it, maybe you'll, you'll picture it when I describe it. I neglected to mention something outside the church that is so common in those rural congregations. Next to the church building is a cemetery. And in that cemetery there are generations of families who had faithfully served God and attended that congregation over the decades. And as people drive by or walk by to get to the church, they're reminded of loved ones that aren't with them on that day. And right there, as we look at this scene, as we see the church and the graveyard, as, as we gaze at it from a distance, we recognize this fundamental tension that all Christians live with and experience. In the graveyard, we see the names that are etched in stone. There's something permanent about that stone. The other day, Sophie and, and I were... We often wander through the cemetery that's near, near our house. We go there for, for walks to measure herself on a tree that's there that we've done for years to see the deer that wander through the cemetery. It's, it's sort of a little macabre, but it's peaceful. And we found number one, the lot number one. I don't know how many lots there are. And those headstones go back for years over a century, of people that have gone before, of 
people that are no longer here. And, and, the, and the headstone is, is an attempt to leave a permanent mark on the earth. To say this person lived a life that was meaningful. Lived a life that, that meant something. And so we put a mark on the ground so that their name and their memory are not forgotten. And if it's someone that we, we know, we grieve when we see that, we ache, we lament, to use a biblical word. But as we continue our walk through the church doors, we sit amongst our family. And there we worship a risen Savior, an almighty God. And we look forward to eternal life and we, we participate in the singing of that song of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Come and carry me home. And yet, there's that graveyard just out the window. And so as we conclude this sermon series that we've been discussing five foundational truths about God, let's remember where we've come in that journey. God loves, and nothing changes that. God listens. God is with us, present, and nothing changes that. God came and dwelled among us, and so God understands. And nothing changes that. And even when we can't explain it, God reigns. God is on the throne, and nothing changes that. And today, as we, we conclude, we're reminded that although we've talked about the struggles and we've, we've acknowledged the uncertainties of life, that there is a certainty because at the end, when it's all said and done, we're convinced that the truth that God wins. And so the, the series title, 911, God, is still an appropriate title because these are truths to remember, to fall back upon, to build upon in times of crisis and chaos. But the knowledge that God wins, changes everything for us. The graveyard still exists, but it's the knowledge that God wins that allows us to walk through the graveyard and sing of his victory and sing of the life that we look forward to because the church provides perspective. And so I really wrestled last week with how to explore how it is that, that God reigns when we're hurting. How, how is it that we can say God is on the throne but my life is in pieces here? And, and really there, there almost is no explanation except we trust God's truth. But this week I feel more comfortable as we talk about God winning. Because in this instance, we can point back 
to the empty tomb. It's what Paul did. The apostle at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, I want to remind you of the things that I've taught you, the most important things. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. The Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep so notice that that Jesus mentions, uh, Paul mentions Jesus' death. He says, these are the things that are first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's one of the things of first importance. But he moves past that pretty quickly. And I think that often that's a place where we want to spend 95% of our time, that Jesus died for our sins. But Paul keeps moving pretty quickly and he gets to the empty tomb. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he puts his energy, his effort into convincing, into persuading, into defending the idea that the tomb was really empty because Jesus appeared to Peter, to the 12, to more than 500. And ultimately Paul says he appeared to me. What I find interesting is even as Paul celebrates the resurrection of Jesus, the new life, the hope of more to this life than we experience now, that he's still able to comment that of those 500, most are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. We see that tension built into this very declaration of the resurrection of Jesus. And so it is the consistent story throughout Scripture. This cycle that God's people get in trouble, cry out for rescue. God hears them, and God delivers. The book of Judges, in a sense, is a classic example of that time after time after time that happens. And so while the timing varies. We can't say, oh, if you cry out to God today, he'll hear you tomorrow, he'll take action the next day, and you will have won by the end of the week. It doesn't work like that. The the timing really is a mystery to us. That, That is in God's wisdom. That's part of God's purview. But the pattern is consistent. All the way back to Genesis chapter 4. There we see that Cain kills his brother, Abel. And in verse 10, God approaches Cain. And he says to him, Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Interesting, there's not just people that cry out to God. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so God loves Abel. God has accepted his sacrifice. He's accepted his worship. And God listens to his plight. 
And although Abel died, God never left the throne of heaven. God was reigning even when Abel was killed. And when Cain is is punished, when, when justice is carried out, we see that God wins. God has taken what was broken and has brought some some justice to bear. Although he doesn't bring Abel back to life. He doesn't restore it to exactly the way it was. But then Cain cries out in a twist in the story that you're not expecting because Cain is the one who has just been punished. Cain now cries out. He says, my punishment is more than I can bear, God. And he goes on to say, look, I've committed the first murder. Now the people know they can do that and they're going to be mad at me. They're going to want to murder me. He already understood the the concept of revenge and payback. He says, God, now you're sending me away. People will hunt me. My life is going to be terrible. And we expect God to say, well, you deserve that. You shouldn't have killed Abel. Pretty simple, Cain. Now you've got to live with the consequences of your bad decision. Instead, we see that God loves Cain just as God had loved Abel. And because God loves Cain, he listens when Cain cries out. He can empathize with Cain with what it's going to be like. He understands and and God is still in charge and he graciously promises to protect Cain. And although Cain's enemies perhaps had every justification to seek revenge, to seek their own justice, God wins over those enemies. That once God protects Cain, they cannot touch him. Now the book of Exodus, if we move from Genesis over to Exodus, the the book of Exodus opens with the Israelites oppressed in Egyptian slavery. In chapter 3 of Exodus, God says to Moses, as he appears at the burning bush, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land a land flowing with milk and honey. We again see that God loved the descendants of Abraham, the children of Israel. God loved them. And when they cried out in their suffering, God listened, God heard them, God was present with them. And even during the centuries of oppression, and and we would say, why did it take so long? And God never, he he gives an answer like in the New Testament, but, but in that time and place, he doesn't give an explanation as to why their suffering endured so long. But God was still on the throne. God was still in control throughout their suffering. And so many of them were born and and lived through that slavery and never saw for a day of freedom in their life. And yet God was still on the throne. 
And then one day God says it's time. And he calls Moses and he meets him at the burning bush. He says to Moses, I've heard their cries. And I'm coming to do something about it. I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. To take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And so it may not have seemed like it in the moment as God spoke with Moses. In fact, Pharaoh disputed not only that God reigned, Pharaoh disputed that God even existed. Who is this God? I've never heard of him. And then there's this conflict that takes place between Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And even though there's a contest, and even though the Egyptian magicians could match some of the the miracles, some of the plagues that, that Moses, that God performed through Moses. And, and perhaps they're thinking, oh, this is an even battle at the start. We know that the battle was over before it began. We know that just because they could, the magicians could turn water, uh, turn the, the water red, turn it into blood, there in Pharaoh's court. We know what's going to happen at the end of it, that their children will die, that Pharaoh's firstborn will die, that the Israelites will go free. It was inevitable. It was always going to happen, regardless of how it looked while Moses stood in the wilderness talking to a burning bush, regardless of how it looked when Moses stood before the greatest ruler on the earth and the ruler laughed at regardless of how it looked after nine plagues and Pharaoh's heart is still hardened, the outcome was inevitable because God wins. And that is a truth that we can take to the bank. And that's our dilemma. That's our tension. We've seen the first miracle. We've seen the empty tomb. We've we've seen the resurrected Jesus. The Jesus that not only is resurrected, but that is ascended, that sits upon the throne of heaven, that reigns now from heaven. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus' resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, a little later than we read just now. He refers to it as the first fruits as the guarantee, as the deposit, the first resurrection of many resurrections, the first new life of of all new life. And so we've seen that. And we live in this in-between time where we're saying, "Well, well, God won that day. In the hills outside Jerusalem, God was victorious over death. And we read John's description of the new heaven and of the new earth, the new creation that's found there in Revelation. We dream of the moment when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and settles upon the earth, when God makes his dwelling among his people, when creation is restored. 
when life is the way God always intended it to be without pain and tears, suffering and death. But we live in the in-between, between the first resurrection and the last resurrection. And so whatever our hurt in this in-between period, it's real and it's significant. Whether it be the loss of a loved one, and I know some of us are feeling that kind of loss today, aren't we? I mean, just, well, I don't need, need to list them. But that hurts. Whether it be the loss, whether it be the sickness and struggles of a loved one, whether it be personal experience of racial injustice or whether it just be the overwhelming sense as we see this media feed that the team seems to keep coming without stopping. And we say, Lord, when will it end? How long? Whether it be political despair or, or isolation, social and physical isolation during the pandemic or fear of the coronavirus, fear of health concerns whether it be financial pressure or marital despair. These truths um, about God apply in these circumstances as much as they applied to Cain, as much as they applied to the Israelites in slavery, as much as they applied to the apostles that were gathered in an upper room, fearful because their Savior was dead. And so in our hurt, in our pain, in our struggles, we need to remind ourselves that God wins. God loves you. God is with you, listening to you. He understands and feels your pain. God still reigns. Your hardships don't mean that God has turned away. And God will win. We may not know how he will win. We may not know when he will win. But we can know that no matter how deep the darkness, God wins. Because the tomb is empty. Because God is God. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that there's a, a lake of a fire. And often that's used to to threaten us, to, to um, intimidate us into living a good life because there's a lake of fire. And, and there's certainly a warning there in that image for us. But in that chapter, we're told that this lake of fire is the final destination of the devil. That the lake of fire is the final destination, not just of the devil that appeared in Genesis 1, but it's the final destination of death that appeared right back at the beginning also. And it's not just the final destination of, of Satan. It's not just the final destination of death. It's the final destination of Hades itself, the, the afterlife, that God has something new and better and is finished with. God will win. No matter how intimidating Satan, death, 
or Hades may appear at various points in our life, God will win. And so we remind ourselves of this. We encourage one another as we, we point each other towards this truth. And we go back to that little country church. And we stand at a distance where in one glance we can see the chapel and the graveyard. And we walk through the graveyard. And we acknowledge its reality. We acknowledge the love and the relationships that are represented in those headstones. But we keep moving. We may slow down, we may pause, we may reminisce, but we keep moving. And those graveyard, those headstones don't just reflect the relationships we've lost. They reflect other hurts, opportunities that we've lost, jobs, friendships, maybe our favorite house, pets. We have all kinds of good health. We have all kinds of things that we lose along the course of our life. And those headstones acknowledge that reality. And we remember them. We acknowledge them. But we keep moving towards the chapel. And we walk into the chapel and we worship, not just in the chapel, but we worship at the throne of God with the saints of God who are gathered around that throne and we hear the words of Jesus from Revelation chapter 22 and verse 13 at the, the very end of Scripture. He says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Jesus was there in the garden. He's the first. And he's there at the end. The last man standing. Because he is the last. Because God wins. And because God wins, we have the right to enter through those gates, to, to have access to that tree of life that was defended by a fiery sword back at the very beginning. God's still at work in me. He's still at work in you. God is still at work in the world. And when things are under construction, we know how bumpy they can be. But whatever life throws at us, we can know with confidence that the tomb is empty. That when we cry out, 911, God, that God wins. And so we worship. We worship. We come to the throne of God. And today we let the people up there with the harps and the voices, we let them do the singing. But we worship with Jesus around the table in a moment. We worship with our lives as we honor God. We worship in all that we do to give God the preeminence. That's our response.
because God wins. I'm going to leave you with that today and uh, hand over to Kate.